There's so much inequality in cities and also uh, between cities. So the United States uh, is a metropolitan urbanized nation. Metro economies are driven by cities at their core, and you'd think that therefore, oh, we must value cities and assist them and help them, but we don't. You're making this very common sense argument, which is, look, all the action is in these places. We should support them. It's just dumb not to. You know, as a, as a city boy, I resent that. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Well, Goldie, today we're talking to Rick McGahee, who's an economist and senior fellow at the Schwartz Center for Economic Policy Analysis and the Institute on Race, Power, and Political Economy at the New School, about his new book, Unequal Cities, uh, which is um, kind of an exploration of why there's so much inequality in cities and also uh, between cities. And I I'm really looking forward to this conversation because you and I have spent a lot of time exploring the consequences of inequality on non-urban places, on rural right. places. And I know we disagree a little bit about the efficacy of addressing that challenge because you're more cynical than I am. Than right, right. We we don't disagree on the moral imperative. We, we should improve uh, the lives yeah. of rural Americans. There's been, a, a, you know, a lot of suffering, deaths of despair, etc. Yeah. We just disagree on whether there's any political payoff. <laughs> you know, that's okay. my feeling that yeah, they'll have more okay. money to spend on Trump campaigns yeah. and, and QAnon conspiracies. Yeah, exactly. I have more hope in humanity. And I think that <laughs> if you treat people fairly, they'll treat you fairly back. You know, and so this, uh, this book uh, and Rick's research it should be of great interest to us because he's doing some thinking about stuff that I think is very, very important. So let's, you know, with that, let's let's get right into it. I'm Rick McGahee. I'm an economist at the New School, and I have a current book called uh, Unequal Cities from Columbia University Press, which is about the paradox of cities being the source of American and economic prosperity, but yet we neglect them badly. That's uh, an issue near and dear to our hearts. It is indeed. <laughs> Being it city is. folk ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and interested in economic progress. Rick, why don't you lay out your general thesis for our listeners? So the United States uh, is a metropolitan urbanized nation. In 2020, US Metro has produced 90% of our GDP. The Los Angeles region's GDP is greater than that of the state of Pennsylvania. The output of our top 10 metros is greater than the combined, the combined output of 38 states. So these metro economies are driven by cities at their core, and you'd think that therefore, oh, we must value cities and assist them and help them, but we don't. We're hostile to cities and urban life. It's built into our constitution and federalism. And it's reflected in our bad urban economics, something I know that you all are interested in. So the book explores that paradox of cities being the source of prosperity, 
yet our neglect of them and I think the misunderstanding of mainstream urban economics about cities. We very much agree with your thesis uh, and have some pretty specific ideas about why what you're saying is true. And those ideas are linked to research that people like Jeff West and Louis Benacore have done about the agglomeration effect of cities mm -hmm. that, you know, the effectively the multiplicative effect of increasing density and diversity on innovation. And um, as we've explained to our listeners before, socioeconomic outputs go up non-linearly with, uh, with increases in population. So a city that's 10 times as large as another one doesn't produce 10 times as many patents, it's something like 20 times as many patents, twice as many per person. And that that gives cities both a massive advantage in terms of creating prosperity, but also it's a increasing returns effect. The bigger you get, the easier it is, and so on and so forth. Is that Does that view of this correspond to your own view of what's going on? Yes, for cities as, as hubs of innovation and growth, I think that's right. I mean, you've always got agglomerating effects and then dispersing effects, but the agglomerating effects uh, are very powerful. And as you point out, and this is a place where some mainstream economists agree, right? The emphasis on innovation as coming from cities. Uh, Ed Glazer believes that lots of Enrico Moretti, a lot of mainstream yeah. economists accept that part of the thesis that innovation comes from cities uh, and complexity and diversity. So I think that's pretty well established, uh, established view. The, the question is then why does that, why does that same process or why is it parallel to a process that reproduces and inequality both within cities and between cities? The spatial inequality between cities and between cities and rural areas, that seems pretty obvious from the type, the agglomeration effects, you know, like what Moretti describes. Um, I'm curious about the inequality within cities, whether that is that is inherent or whether that's something that is due to our politics. I would say more the latter. If you look at the mainstream economic account of, of cities, inequality is kind of a modified Kuznets curve, right? I'm going to we can do the economics here, I think. The idea is you'll get inequality at first, but then the city will grow, labor markets will get better, things will equalize in some magical market way, and yeah. then inequality will go down. So yeah. all of uh, that is bullshit. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, even Kuznets has footnotes, he says, you know, this is kind of an idea I have, yeah. but there's really not a lot yeah. of data for it. Uh, yeah. Um, and it is bullshit to, uh, to use that technical <laughs> yeah, term. Yeah. We don't see that. And so that's no. one of the fundamental predictions of the mainstream economic uh, urban model right. that has turned out to be false. Yeah, And I think that is a political issue. And in the United States, at least, and the book is very based on cases in the U.S. in particular, although I think it's true more generally, that it's a lack of power and an inability to adjust the, how those returns are distributed, which is built into our metropolitan form. Yeah. And, and if I could just underscore what you just said, one of the various ways in which traditional economics conceives of these dynamical systems is as, is as an ergodic system. And in fact, these systems aren't stable in that way. It's not like a game of chess. It's like a game of Monopoly that depends mostly on path dependence, luck, and compounding, to say nothing of power and preference. Mm -hmm. And 
in the absence of incredibly powerful countermeasures, these systems just become more and more unequal. And that's the result of the policy, effectively policy malpractice in, in our cities and in our country at large. And so here we are. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And if you think about uh, uh, regional economies, uh, this disjunction between one regional economy and multiple governments, this isn't quite the, the same argument you're making, which is rooted, I think, more in how innovation takes place and then how those returns get captured and right. not distributed. But even the returns that come from the growth driven by innovation, if you look at metropolitan areas, in my three case studies, Los Angeles, single regional economy has five counties, over 190 separate governments who often fight with each other. Detroit, 10 counties, over 300 governments. And then New York, three states, 27 counties, over 750 municipal governments, plus uh, special sanitation, transport, water districts. So you've got this fracturing of the political apparatus you would need to even do redistribution, much less getting at the core issue of why the returns are so unequal in the first place. Though I can tell you in Seattle, where it's much less divided, we still have trouble on the redistribution sure. side. I mean, we have a city government, we own our own utilities, both electric and, and water and waste. And then there's the Metro King County, which Seattle sits within, which has mm -hmm. a lot of the, the functions. Yes, the individual cities and towns have control, but uh, it's much more centralized and much less distributed, the power structure, and yet we have a lot of the same issues as these other cities, in particular uh, affordable housing, the affordable housing crisis yeah. that uh, you see all across the country. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the challenges for progressives is to understand that this isn't just redistribution, as important as redistribution is. Uh, for instance, New York City is very characterized by a distributional politics post-production, and there's not an engagement with how the economy works in the first place. Uh, and as a result, you're always playing catch up. And even if you had a more unified or a better region, as you point out, this isn't just a question of redistribution, as important mm -hmm. as that is. Yeah, uh, I think we're in, absolute agreement with you about the nature of the uh, about the problem right yeah. both in inequality within cities and inequality between cities and that it is a it's certainly a challenge for people and it's also a challenge for our politics maybe an example might be useful to start with it, it struck me that you compared new york rather unfavorably to los angeles from a policy perspective uh, if you could explain the differences between the two cities and how they've approached this. Being careful to say that while I admire what L.A. has done, and I think there are a lot of lessons they have for the reasons that we were talking about before, not substantially move the needle on inequality. If you live in the United States, you're going to be living in an unequal system. Yeah. But L.A. has, I think, taken measures uh, for that. So New York, my chapter starts at the fiscal crisis, uh, where the... And But this is true for lots of metropolitan areas. The tax base moves out to the suburbs. The needs in the city get higher. They don't have federal aid. And they get into fiscal trouble. Uh, that, with the, the fiscal crisis, New York went into long, really decades worth of uh, relative austerity in the city, uh, all the way up through Michael Bloomberg, who had a vision then of 
making the city kind of a corporate headquarters, but was against raising the minimum wage, against uh, paid sick leave, against anything the city could arguably have afforded to do to make lower paying jobs work better. Bill de Blasio took on inequality, but again, really around housing and policing issues. There's not a vision of the economy of New York, I think, except largely as something that produces wealth that you can try and redistribute. The contrast with LA, I think uh, the LA chapter starts with the, uh, the beating of Rodney King and the subsequent urban violence that came when the police officers were acquitted. That came at the same time as a massive structural change in the LA economy with the collapse of the aerospace industry. LA in 1990, LA County had 10% of all aerospace jobs in the United States, plus supplier chains and other things. In a decade after 1986, aerospace employment in the LA region, and therefore a lot of the related supply chain, fell by almost 50%, replaced by low-wage, mostly immigrant garment manufacturers. What's encouraging, oddly to me, about the LA case is that people there with labor, strong labor union support, but not just them, communities of color, community organizers, some scholars, said, this is falling apart, we have to do something about it. And they organized uh, and continue to organize the group I talk about, the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy, Lane, but there are a lot of others in that story as well. And what they were able to do was bring together three groups that don't often work well together. One, kind of unions, but also developers who want to make some money, but also some of them you can work with. That's one pool. Second pool is communities of color who do want jobs and prosperity uh, fairly distributed. And the third was environmentalists who often are seen as opposed to growth. And what LA has been able to do through constant negotiation and discussion and organizing is have those three groups work together. My core example was in 2008, in the midst of the global financial crisis, they used a ballot measure to raise the sales tax, a regressive tax, but still uh, income that they could get. Uh, that takes a two thirds vote in California uh, on the ballot because of Proposition 13 restrictions. They got a two thirds vote in favor of raising taxes to build the LA Metro system. And everybody got something from that, the unions, got unionized jobs, but they in turn had the promise to be inclusive of more minority workers, mostly men still, but uh, poor and minority workers who'd been excluded from that. It created development opportunities for real estate around transit hubs. Communities of color got more jobs and some monies uh, directed them also better bus service. They fought for that. And so it wouldn't just be Metro. And the environmentalists yet uh, some movement very hard in LA to roll back auto and, uh, and uh, carbon producing transportation. So that's encouraging to me that those three groups, none of whom could have got what they wanted working separately, that they found a way to work together against a lot of forces that pull them in opposite directions. And I don't regrettably see that in New York. What role does racism play in anti-urban bias? Uh, gigantic. I think it's hard to look at any policy in the United States and not think about its racial uh, impacts, but race is certainly a, a, a key to it. It's always been true to some extent with an anti-urban bias, but especially with both the great migration uh, of Blacks out of the South with the change of Southern agriculture, and then really in post-World War II with suburbanization and white flight from cities where uh, we threw a lot of federal money and resources 
into building these independent suburbs around the core city, which still was driving the regional economy. There's a lot of white flight, people move out of the city, and then you get uh, a lot of conflict between these suburbs and the central city, which increasingly takes on a racial dimension. So right. in housing markets, we know the suburbs control zoning. Zoning is often exclusionary. At that time, it was actually explicitly racist. Uh, yes. you know, I don't have to go into those details. And then that reproduces itself over time. In your research on this problem, what surprised you? What did you learn that you, you sort of didn't expect to learn? Yeah, I, I, I sort of always knew that federal policy was uh, tilted against cities because of our, our love of agrarianism. I, I use Thomas Jefferson's quote about great cities as a pestilence upon mankind. Right. Jefferson, yeah. Jefferson like the, said the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia had some virtue because it would kill off some of the urban population. I, I think what surprised me, <laughs> as a Philadelphian, I take I yeah. take offense at that. Well, that's I mean, some say think well, I was an agrarian slave holding guy, but it, right. uh, the, the, this, they were scared of cities. The French Revolution and and urban riots scared a lot. Of, there were quotes in Washington and stuff in this too. Jefferson is the most articulate. But I think what surprised me more is how hostile state governments are to cities uh, historically. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is, is something that I bring out that isn't written about as much. States control their cities. Uh, and there was a big battle on this in the 19th century that was stimulated, oddly, by railroad financing. Cities were issuing, and states, tons of bonds to try and attract railroads. And it was beginning to destabilize uh, the financial markets. And there's this series of court fights. Are cities allowed to be independent actors or do states control them? And it ultimately ends up being decided in favor of the states that the cities, with very rare exceptions, are totally creatures of state government and that they can't really do anything without state approval. So that surprised me how deep that is and how shaping that is. That encourages the suburbs. We see a lot of preemption of state governments, of cities trying to do progressive things. Uh, the state of Missouri has two big cities, Kansas City and St. Louis. Both those cities passed urban uh, minimum wage increases, and the Missouri state legislature overturned both of the minimum wage increases and then passed a law saying no city in Missouri can raise its minimum wage without state approval. So the, it's this power of states in our federal system, which has also a strong racial component, particularly in the Jim Crow era, that surprised me, I think. Yeah. So here's another issue I'd love to get your thoughts on. Um, we have, you know, this agglomeration effect, this increasing returns effect that you find comes as a consequence of diversity uh, and density and complexity that produces the effectively a lot, all the innovation from which you know, most of our prosperity comes from is as close to a law of nature as it gets in terms of economics. I mean, it just is really hard to fight against that. Although remote, you know, like Zoom has made an impact on that, uh, but yeah. the, a, a bit, but <laughs> in, tr in truth, it is very difficult to fight with that force. And as a consequence, what happened in our country and in most countries is that effectively all of the prosperity is produced in superstar cities. 
And that has created a circumstance in which, you know, if you don't live in one of those cities, if you live in the country, about all that's available to you is, you know, opening campgrounds or growing food. That's it. And as a consequence, the people who don't live in these superstar cities are effectively frozen out from the majority of the prosperity which is created in the country. And this effect applies in Germany as well as it does in the United States. But the thing about Germany is that you're never more than 30 minutes by car from a big city. In the Mm -hmm. United States, you may be seven hours in a car from, from a big city. And that dynamic creates a terrible political problem. Right. In our system, because uh, it creates understandable resentment from the people who live in effectively 90 percent of the surface area of the country. There's not that many people there, but they do elect senators. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a a big that's a big problem. You know, this is the, the problem in the United States of America. And if you simply stipulate that we're not likely to change that arrangement, then it is very much incumbent upon us to find ways to make sure that the people who do not live in the 11% of the counties that created 90% of the jobs over the last 30 or 40 years, we've got to find a way to make those people feel included. And so we have written extensively about how to do economic development in non-urban places as a way to solve this problem. You are writing about effectively the opposite problem, which is you're making this very common sense argument, which is like, look, all the action is in these places. We should support them. It's just dumb not to, right? Yeah. So how do you, how do we resolve that the tension between those two things? Does that is that a fair question? Yeah, no, it's it's a good question, and I like your point. Although my book really is anchored in the United States system, we do see these effects elsewhere. No, you it's mentioned everywhere. Germany. You look at the United Kingdom and London versus yeah. England yeah. versus yeah. other cities. They've had decades of various policies that don't don't move that needle at all yeah that's it's a great point this is it is a real challenge uh, to me i I guess i well setting aside the disproportionality of power in those states and also how that power is maldistributed most people who live in rural areas don't benefit from as you know quite well from the fact they've got senators they're treated badly and they're stirred up on other issues but they're not given good development. I mean, most people in the, at least the lower 48 states live in a commuting shed. There's a great crazy map that I refer to, two geographers did, where they mapped 90, about 98% of the uh, commuting trips in the United States. And you see this heat map of cities uh, mm-hmm. emerge yeah. from it. Of course uh, you do. It, yeah. and So there might be something with those second level uh, cities that, they, that can be brought into a network uh via the technology i i I was more of a skeptic that working from home would stick as much as it seems to be doing give it time yeah no no (laughs) well most relocations are still intra-metropolitan they're not inter-metropolitan right they're within the same metropolitan area for a whole bunch of other reasons what you do in these rural areas they've got to be brought if if, as you said correctly described very well that this is where the action is. This is where the economy is generating. How do we bring them into that network in some way that still keeps them in place? And so that does mean they have to be brought into that production network in some way, uh, or we just have to be willing to subsidize. uh, Right. Which is a legitimate alternative, right? Right. We should just be honest. It's well, yeah, I I don't know that we're doing it to a certain extent. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, we're, we're massively doing it. Yeah, now. yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 Greek economist uh, Yanis Varoufakis yeah. makes this point about the the failure of the euro is that it's a monetary union without political union, and he compares it to the United States, which is, you know, I, I don't know how <laughs> what a great understand. political union we are right now, yeah. but. The effect of our system is that we, as he says, we recycle surpluses from the surplus, largely, you know, blue cities uh, mm -hmm. through the rest of the country and uh, into the deficit areas. And that's actually, he argues, is necessary for these surplus cities and states to remain surplus cities and states because it maintains a market for them. Yeah. To a certain extent. Well, that's interesting. I just I've only looked at the fiscal stuff of that, which you know quite well that the blue states subsidize the red states by and large. Yeah, um, right. Uh, and and the blue cities subsidize the red counties. I mean, that's yeah. you see that yeah. in in Washington. There's like five or six surplus counties. You know, Seattle being the biggest. You know, King mm -hmm. County, where Seattle is, um, we get about. Uh, 65 cents back from the state for every dollar that we send and yeah. it's the majority of the state budget comes from here and then there are counties in eastern washington where you know they get three four five six dollars back for every dollar they send and i want to tell you when you go out there and you talk to voters my god do they resent the way seattle is sucking them dry Yes, yeah. they, they believe it's the opposite. Similar, yeah, yeah, similar stories in most states. I think that that the big metro, the driver metros, also contribute to tax revenue, uh, and then are seen as oppressing the areas. We've lost. It's not just messaging, but we've done poorly on explaining that to people and finding some way to link them in. I mean, arguably, poor rural people and poor urban people have lots in common, right? Lots of the same kind of exploitation, but they've been a, they've been successfully set against each other. Uh, in West Virginia, people there firmly believe that it was Obama's regulations that, that knocked out the coal industry. But if you look at coal industry employment, it was dropping like a stone for 15 yeah, to 20 years sure. before that. Right? And we have lots of examples of that sort of thing. So we have not done well in finding ways to link the economic interests of particularly, I think, lower and middle income people in cities and rural, uh, most rural residents, because most rural residents don't benefit from this domination by, you know, the politics there, they're easily dominated by a few powerful interests, uh, often rooted in industries that, that aren't taking care of those folks. So where does all that subsidy go then? Well, some goes to keep the households going because otherwise they don't have much labor income. A lot of it goes to probably get sucked up through landlord work, uh, some profit. I mean, we have lots and lots of subsidies, right? We have agriculture subsidies and those right. all go to big firms. The, the subsidies that flow to individual households really tend to be in the form of uh, Medicare, Medicaid, um, right. Uh, and uh, Social Security for older folks, and they consume that, and then it feeds back into the sales of these consumer groups, I think. It doesn't produce a lot in terms of land values, uh, at least until there has been some effect, I think, of the working from home, people who move out further from their core city and carry that income with them, and that's pushed up land prices, again, making people angry in those areas. But I think most of the subsidy flow really is in the form of transfer payments. I don't have that nailed down, but I think that that 
is where a lot of it is. One of our questions is always the benevolent dictator question. Yeah. Uh, which is, if you were in charge, what would you do? What do you, what yeah. do you recommend? Well, I, I'd probably like Nick too. I'd be like, a le- uh, I mean, in academia, I'd be a left-wing Ron DeSantis and have a lot better economics produced <laughs> than the economy. Uh, but I uh, I think about city-states. I, I'd take this heat map that these geographers did and think, what if we realize, it turns out there are about 55 of these clusters. So I thought, well, what if that were the political map of the United States and not our states? Uh, what would the Senate look like? It wouldn't be nirvana, but I think city and urban-centered political uh, jurisdictions would help a lot because this is a collective action problem, right? Like cities can't solve these things on their own. They need to ally with other cities. I think that's the story in California, which has a lot of problems, but but has its urban areas have now kind of got some leverage over the state government. Uh, if you had a, a country of city states based on these commuting zone maps, uh, I think you'd have a, a potentially somewhat different politics. It still doesn't go to the next core problem about how the economy produces in this way, but but I think we'd have a better chance at making networks and distribution and linkages with a better politics. Interesting. So you think that, if I could just play that back to you, you think that if we, what, what, I'm groping yeah, for words here. Yeah, got rid of state governments and settled on cities and that would so be metro interesting. Regions. Yeah, yeah, metro, metro regions. Yeah, metro Yeah, basically metro driven. So Texas is a, my favorite case, right? You know, the Texas Triangle, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, and Houston. It produces, what, 70, 80% of Texas's GDP, 60-some percent of the population. But its political leverage in the state is minuscule, right? If the state were organized around, you'd still have conservatives, right, and people voting that way. But a, an urban-centered governance I think would be better. Interesting. Okay, so so uh, given the fact that our constitution is broken <laughs> and unfixable, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and we Other can't <laughs> we can't get rid of the states. Um, right. If we ever went to a constitutional convention under our current rules, it would end up even worse. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so. What can cities do to address the inequality problem within them? Um, I think you build from where you are. So at least cities with reasonably strong markets. Uh, Detroit is a real challenge for me to think about what it does. But, but uh, you know, Seattle was a pioneer in raising the city minimum wage. If you have a state government that's not going to preempt you, uh, there are a number of things you can do on the labor side. I think in economic development, you can stop doing dumb things. You can stop wasting money on firm-specific subsidies. All economists, even the most conservative, think that economic development subsidies that go to individual companies are just a total waste of money and cut your tax base. And the same with geographically narrowly targeted things like uh, enterprise zones and opportunity zones. So there are things you could stop doing. Uh, Tim Bardick at Upjohn has got good evidence on things that you can do that they, they don't solve this problem, but they're better at job creation, uh, look for industries with multipliers, business and workforce development services. Um, I think some stuff on the labor market regulation you can do if the, the weight will bear it. And on, on economic development, a lot more use of community benefit agreements, which are 
legally binding uh, agreements that tie economic development activity, even subsidies, because I don't think politically you can actually get rid of those either, but you could should restrain them. But, but that there's clear negotiated outcomes that are legally enforceable and monitored. That was a, a big uh, tool in the Los Angeles experience. And then on housing, we mentioned before, it's another whole discussion we don't have time for, but I think we need a lot more supply. Like one yeah. of the places progressives are making a mistake is to be anti-development. You can have development yeah. with also strong affordability provisions and even mm -hmm. maybe some kind of rent regulation. But this anti-supply, anti-growth thing doesn't work for us. Uh, yeah. The climate adaptations, there's job creating stuff out of that. So that's a, there are things cities can do and then kind of then then try and build out from that find ways to find some common interests with uh, the suburbs which is hard uh, but uh, hopefully doable especially if your city has got some prosperity in it one final question why do you do this work well that's a great question i i went to the new school to, to study economics and thought i'd be a history of economic thought major i went to study with bob heilbrunner and ended up just caring a lot about these policies. I mean, I think the economy is the central thing and it's so misunderstood. Uh, so that's both within the field and that, that all of us, and you all do a great job with this, have an obligation to get other ideas out there that can be of use to people who really are at the, more, at the front lines of trying to make change. Great. Well, Rick, it was, so, uh, it was such a pleasure to have you on and uh, best of luck. In your Great. No, thanks. And then keep up your good work. I was really excited when uh, the press said that uh, that I was going to be uh, on your program. I'm a, Great. I'm a big fan. Thank you ah, so much. Thank you. My God, Nick, would I love the city state model? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I was thinking you would love that. You should see the. Did you see the map? He has a map of this in the in the book where you see how the. The country would be divided up into like 50 some uh, city states of relatively equal populations. And yeah. then, of course, there are these void areas. Think of it as like <laughs> unincorporated King County. There are these void areas and like big swaths of Wyoming and uh, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, where there's nothing. <laughs> I mean, there's some people. But there's cow and sheep and coal yeah. and oil and gas, whatever. And <laughs> I don't know quite what you do with those places in yeah, the middle. This is the, this is the new version of that famous New Yorker thing where there's New York and the Hudson and then the hinterlands. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which, which, of course, is, is what the country was when it was founded. Yeah. And we created this... Uh, federal system with it where every state gets two senators and yeah and so forth it it hasn't turned out well because you know one of the points that that Rick makes in the book is that when the United States was founded we were a very rural country compared yeah. to Europe yes. it was about uh 6 7% urban compared to uh, closer to 30% in Europe even at the end of the 18th century and now, of course, you know, the whole world is is urbanized. And so we have this constitution that was created for a middle class agrarian, uh, largely rural America that has been superimposed uh, on a country that is very, very different. And so it disempowers the cities. And 
you know, as a as a city boy, I resent that. <laughs> uh, and and this is part of our disagreement on on rural policy. Yeah. Um, uh, I think I look at a city like Seattle. I see a city that could do so much more if we were unencumbered by the state and unencumbered by the federal government and even acknowledging the need to recycle our surpluses throughout the rest of the economy, both for economic, if not for moral reasons, if we were free to serve the needs of our own people, we could do a lot better job if we could invest in education and in housing and in the type of high labor standards, uh, high standards that would improve everybody's lives. We could be a model here for the rest of the rest of the country. I, I think yeah. that Seattle my adopted city almost more than anywhere else in the country in the world has an opportunity to uh, do things right. Yeah. Uh, to take advantage of the affluence that we have to do things right. And the politics makes it very difficult when we're in a state where we can't at the moment cannot have an income tax, for example. Yeah. Well, hopefully that's going to change, but yeah. anyway, I mean, I wonder if there are less ambitious implications for rearranging how we govern regions. I have to sit with it and think about it. But, you know, as he points, quite rightly points out, most of these things are collective action problems. And if you dice the polity up in the wrong way, it gets very hard to solve those collection pro action problems. And if you rearrange the chairs a little bit, maybe, maybe you could do a little bit better. I don't know. I got to think about it. The fact that Red County, red state voters believe the opposite, that they think we're subsidized, they're subsidizing us instead of we're subsidizing them. I think that's a big step. And I'm OK subsidizing them like I'm OK building their infrastructure. Uh, I want people to be able to have dignified, comfortable lives uh, growing the food we eat. <laughs> you know, I think that's important, but I think there needs to be some awareness and and so maybe the solution in the long run is more we continue these subsidies, but it's it's like paying tribute. You know, we'll let you we'll let you manage your cities, run your cities the way you want, as long as you keep sending us money, as long as they understand that's what we're doing. We're paying tribute <laughs> to to be able to uh, build the type of lives we want. And if we build enough housing, uh, they are free to move here to take advantage of the prosperity. I think that in the end is the big problem, Nick, is that we can't fulfill the progressive vision that we have in cities like Seattle if we don't build enough housing for people to move here and share in it with us. It's Then it's just hypocritical. We become a walled city, not a city state. Yeah. And we'll uh, put a link in the show notes to Rick's new book, Unequal Cities. Buy it at a local independent bookstore. And uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.